Let's keep talking about the only one who can. How about that this morning as we move forward in this sermon series on secure? And this, um, this morning, I want to I deal with a topic that tends to, in terms of eternal security, assurance of salvation, tends to confuse the issue. And I think it's a very important topic. I think it's a basic topic, but unfortunately, distinctions have to be made, I think, in order to understand it correctly. You know, there's a lot of uh, biblical truth out there, but we got to be careful how we put it together. we got to be careful in what order we put it together. And it's kind of like, you know, the, uh, an old uh, saying or an old guy used to tell me, he said, you know, if, if, you, if you make a pie and you just pick ingredients because pie starts with P and you pick a bunch of ingredients that start with P, that should make a good pie. That's just not the way you roll on a pie. You don't, you don't just say, okay, you know, pickle starts with P, pepper starts with P, and, and let's mix that together and let's get a pie. That just doesn't work that way. And oftentimes we do the same things with spiritual truth. And I'm, I want to talk this morning about how oftentimes we get the cart before the horse in, in the, the area of salvation. And because we get the cart before the horse, or even worse, imagine if the horse and the cart were like right next to each other. That, would be, that might even be more dangerous, right? But oftentimes, and when I say that, what I mean is we take these theological terms, which we're going to kind of investigate a little bit more this morning, and, we, and justification is the horse. <laughs> that, that's where you've got to start. You know, if we believe that in order to be saved and to go to heaven, you have to be born again, it, ma- it makes no sense about talking about how you behave in the family if you've never even been born, right? We've, there's an order there. There's an order there. You know, I didn't sit all my kids down in Carrie's womb and tell them what it meant to be a Clark. You know, I kind of waited till they got out. I recognized that they were all the same. They lied. They stole. They hit people. They got mad. They told me no. I mean, and then I start correcting them. I start adjusting their behavior. But they had to be born into my family first, right? So there's an order here that we get out of control. And, and this is actually one of the most common confusions is, is taking biblical truth. It's not that some of the things that we're going to talk about this morning aren't found in the Bible. It's just that they cannot be crammed up into justification. That's where confusion begins to reign. And so we want to look at what we're calling, um, and this is, uh, I'll talk more about this, but we're going to look at the confusion within the three tenses of salvation and how that impacts our understanding, our assurance of understanding if we're eternally secure, are we saved, are we not? And so many times people jam truth together when it needs to be kept distinct. And so we want to try to do that this morning, at least point out how we can better keep these truths distinct. But before we do, quick review. Gospel simple. Gospel should be able to write, you should take a sheet of paper, write it in one sentence. And I remember asking somebody one time, you know, what's the gospel? Write it down on a sheet of paper. And, and, I, and I literally thought, you know, okay, this is like a one sentence deal. And they're like, I mean, flipping pages. Like, hey, do you have another sheet of paper? I'm like, seriously, like, what are you writing? This is the gospel. It's simple. This is the message we preach. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, died for your sins and rose again. That's the good news. Notice who's not in that statement. You are not in that statement. I am not in that statement. Because the gospel is not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for you. The gospel is not what you do today or what you do tomorrow, but what God did 2,000 years ago. 
That's the message of the gospel. That's the power of God to salvation. And again, it involves a person, and that person is not you. It's Jesus Christ. And it involves his work, not your good works. That's the distinction we're making in the gospel. Now, the response to the gospel is an area that many of us uh, over the years have heard lots of confusing things shared in this realm. So even when the gospel's preached, there's lots of responses given. Walk an aisle, pray a prayer, raise your hand, commit your life to Christ, give your heart to Christ, ask Jesus to come into your heart. That always cracks me up, especially when that's shared in the same message. Like, is my heart going out or is he coming in? Like, what's the direction going on here? And quite frankly, it's not about giving your life to Christ. It's about Christ giving his life for you. See how often we twist it. We put the spotlight on us. And we often do that when we share these false response cliches of the gospel. What does the Bible say that you and I must do to be saved? We are to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll be saved. That's the response. Why? Because of what we looked at last week. What Jesus Christ accomplished was enough. He paid it in full. He did it all. Every one of your sins, past, present, and future, were paid for 2,000 years ago. And if that's the penalty that you and I deserve, and it was paid for in full, then there's nothing left for you to pay. You know, if Mark takes me out after lunch, and if you want to do this, I will agree to this, and he wants to buy my lunch, and he pays the bill in full, guess what I'm not doing after lunch? I'm not even reaching for my wallet. Why? Because he paid for it. I'm going to take that as a free gift. See, that's what salvation is. God's not requiring extra payment from you through a faithful life or anything like that. Jesus paid it in full as it relates to the penalty of sin. Very important to kind of keep our mind clear here. Now, when we talk about eternal security, what we've defined it as in this series is what is the certainty of a, what is, let's make this personal. What is the certainty of your salvation in God's eyes? God knows whether or not you're saved. God knows it. He knows everybody in the world, anyone who's ever existed, whether or not they were saved. That's eternal security because it's God's viewpoint and it doesn't sway. It's not like God's like, well, you know, there's a technicality there at one point. And I'm going to have to kind of see the evidence when they get there. I'm going to have to interview them to really know. No, he knows. That's eternal security. In contrast, assurance of salvation reflects our own certainty as to whether or not we're saved. And you know, for many people, well, okay, how about me? I I, I don't want to project. I grew up in a church that preached the gospel, and yet every week when, when and the the pastor at that time gave an invitation, that's probably why I was confused, (laughs) but um, gave an invitation every week. And I'm, and I'm, as a kid, I'm like, should I go? I'm like, well, I kind of had a good week. I'm probably saved. But the weeks I didn't have a good week, I mean, you couldn't have kept me in my seat, right? I'm, I'm running down to that altar to get saved all over again. And I must have asked Jesus into my heart thousands of times growing up because I never knew whether or not I was saved. But you know what? As I look back on my life, when I was five years old, I, I couldn't go to sleep, which not, was not a rare thing as a young man for me. In fact, I'd, for many years, I would make my, my brother's bed and my bed, I would make my mom pull them together. I don't know why that made me feel safer than being three feet away, but it did. And she would do that. And I remember being scared one night and, and it was a sermon I had heard and I, all I had heard was hell. And I was like, 
that does not sound like a good place to go. I don't want to be there. I just asked my mom, like, how do I avoid going to hell? I don't, I don't want to go there. So you just got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He died. Do you believe that he died for you and rose again? I said, yeah, that's exactly what I believe. And she said, well, by the word of God and by the testimony of the word of God, you're saved. So I got saved when I was five. That night in, in North Dakota, what good comes out of North Dakota? <laughs> um, that's a joke. There's some, a couple things come good out of North Dakota, but that for me came good. I love my not North Dakota for that very reason. Very meaningful to me. But you know what? I didn't have assurance of that for many years because my eyes kept turning off of my Savior and what he accomplished and, and, and turned back to me and what I was doing, not doing. And so we can see assurance fluctuates for many people because of, you know, is their thinking aligned with the word of God? That's the big key. That's the key that we want to kind of get everybody to. That's kind of the goal, one of the goals of this series. So this is the definition that we've been working with throughout this series. Eternal security means this, one who has been genuinely saved by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone shall never be in danger of God's condemnation or loss of his salvation, but are kept forever saved and secure by God's grace and power. So that's a mouthful. That's a mouthful, but that encapsulates what we're talking about. And specifically that phrase shall never be in danger of God's condemnation. And then just taking these words at face value never means never, right? I mean, it's like, this isn't, these aren't trick questions, but and, and I know that's not a Bible verse, but this is what we believe the scriptures teach. And we've tried to show that in the, in the last couple of weeks. And even last week, trying to just exalt in our thinking the finished work of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished. Really, because that's what it's about. Uh, it, it, we take our focus off of ourselves and we put it on the Savior who died for us and rose again, accomplished it all. And so as we get into this morning, before we kind of move on, I want to talk about the word salvation. We did this a couple of weeks ago, so I want to kind of move through this quickly. But one of the things that we've got to understand is that the word translated salvation always means the same thing, but it's applied differently based on context. So it's one of those words. It always means the same thing, except you have to consider the context when you're considering the meaning. What does it mean? Well, simply this. It means to save, it means to deliver, it means to make whole, it means to preserve, save from danger, loss, destruction, rescue from danger. In fact, the, the word itself is found in various forms over 600 times in the Bible. But, but each use of the word, we've got to go to the context to determine what it is. And, I'll be, and one, of the, one of the things that confuses most people is when they see salvation, they automatically think it means being saved from hell. Now, if that's how you approach Bible interpretation, you are going to run into a lot of confusing passages. And we don't, we don't have time to go through all of them. But just understand, the word itself means to save, preserve, or to deliver from danger. And the question always be, should be when we come to the context, deliver, save, or preserve me from what? What am I being saved from? The context is always going to tell us. Let me give you a couple of examples Matthew 8, 25, Matthew 14, 30, this word salvation or saved is used from being saved from physical danger. We know the story, Jesus out on the boat with his disciples, Jesus taking a nap, the, the winds start raising up. The disciples like, don't you care that we're gonna die? Lord, save us. They're not talking about save us from hell. 
Save us from the waters of the Sea of Galilee so we don't swallow them into our lungs and drown. That second example is when Peter walked on water and he, he was doing good. You know, he was doing the moonwalk over to Jesus. He was staying on top. And then he took his eyes off of Jesus, began to look around, and he, and he began to sink. And what does he cry out to Jesus? Lord, save me. Peter was not talking about save me from hell. He's saying, save my life. I'm about to drown. I'm about to go under. And so that is a great example. Saved from what? Well, saved from drowning in this case. Okay, and this is how the word can be used generically. The way we're typically used to using it is being saved from spiritual consequences, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved by faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest, uh, not of works, lest anyone should boast, right? So saved from what there? Well, saved from the penalty of sin, saved from hell, saved from death. That's the, the wages of sin. And so we see it used often. And so it's very, very important that we don't take the word salvation and try to jam that word into the context of salvation from hell every time we see it in the Bible. It's very important to kind of lay that groundwork as we go forward. So the appropriate question again, save from what? what when we see this word in scripture, immediately as a Bible, as a, as a Bible interpreter, whether amateur or professional Bible interpreter, we should be saying, okay, what's this context talking about? Save from what? What am I being saved from? Or what is this person being saved from in this context? And this brings us to what I, what I just call the three tenses of salvation. I stole that from mentors of mine. It's not like I can go to a Bible verse and it uses the three tenses, but I think it does an adequate job of explaining the teaching of the Bible. So that's why I'm using that phrase. Remember this, before we get too far, remember that spiritual salvation, when we're talking about salvation from the penalty of sin, and even all the aspects of sin, which we'll talk about in a second, is referred to as a free gift. That's one thing we've got to remember. It's a free gift. It's given to us by God's grace, and it's based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, very important to kind of come into this study with that mindset. In fact, we looked at last week, why can God offer it for free? Well, we just came out of Christmas, okay? Did you, did you receive any gifts for Christmas? any of you. And if not, then, then we know what kind of year you had because Santa punished you. No, just kidding. But if, but if you got a gift, you, you, you simply took the gift with your name under the tree, you opened it, and it was yours. How much money did you pay for it? Did you at that point break out your wallet and say, okay, who got me that gift? Here, I want to pay for 50% of it. Here, I want to pay for 20% of it. Here, I want to give you a tip of $1. Did any, does anybody do that at Christmas? No, we don't do that because a gift by definition means what? It's free. Now, it wasn't free to the person who bought it unless they got a five-finger discount somewhere. It might have been free, but that's not what we're promoting either. No, they bought the gift. They bought it. They paid it for it in full, and then they gifted it to you for free. Why? Because the price has been paid. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He paid the penalty for sin in full, past, present, and future, all of our sins. Why? So that he is now free to offer it to you freely without any cost or requirement from you. And so very important to understand that when we talk about spiritual salvation, we're talking about a free gift. Now, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and his work for you alone, you can confidently say the following. And this is where we're gonna kind of get into 
the, the three tenses of salvation, you can say the following, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. That is, that is true of you if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. Whether you realize it or not, now the question is, what have I been saved from? What am I being saved from? And what will I be saved from, right? That's the question that should be swinging around in our mind. And if we don't recognize the distinctions here, this is where we're going to get confused. This is where Bible verses are going to trip us up. This is where our theology is going to be contradictory because in one sentence, we're going to say, yes, Jesus paid it all. And then we're going to use the word but, which is a conjunction to say, but I still must do this. And if he paid it all and you still have to pay for it, on what planet does that make sense? On what planet logically does that make sense? It, either he paid it all or he didn't pay it all. And if he paid it all, then there's nothing left to pay. And if he didn't pay it all, then, then there is something left to pay. I mean, just logically as we follow through this. And so this is where things get confusing if we don't keep these things distinct. So there's a past, a present, and a future aspect to our one salvation. Now, one of the things I want to consider this morning is that two of those aspects are guaranteed the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ. The, the exact moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ that he died for us and rose again, our past aspect is guaranteed, that salvation is guaranteed, and that future aspect is guaranteed. Okay, and we'll talk more about what those are here in a second. But here's where the confusion comes in for many people. This other aspect, the present tense aspect, the, the time that you live from the moment you put your faith in Christ until the time you die, all of that time in between is the present tense. Here's, here's what it is. It's not guaranteed, but it's fully provided for, it's fully resourced, and it has to be accessed by each one of us through moment-by-moment responses of faith to benefit from it. It's there. It's provided for. But if we don't respond by faith, if we're not taking advantage of the resources we possess in Jesus Christ, we won't experience salvation in this aspect. So again, salvation from what? That's the million-dollar question. So let's kind of work through some of these tenses of salvation. So the first tense, what do we say from? Well, the first tense, the theological term is justification. We're saved. We have been saved from what? The penalty of sin. What was the penalty of sin? Death. How do you get delivered from death? Trying to be good? Promising to go to church? Lighting candles? No, the penalty for sin is death. That means what? A death payment has to be made. And so the question is for each one of us, do you want to pay that for eternity or will you trust in Christ's death for you so that you don't have to? There's got to be a death. That's the payment. That's the punishment. That's the debt. And so the reason of this, that this aspect can be guaranteed and we can say it's completed is because of the following. Christ paid the full penalty of this aspect of our salvation by dying in our place. That was the debt. He paid it in full. Remember the word, it is finished, tetelestai. One of the meanings there is what? The debt has been paid in full. This is what he's yelling from the cross. This is why we can talk about it as being done because either the debt's paid or it's not. In fact, those of you, don't raise your hand, but those of you that have had the privilege of paying off a home, you know, you've been scratching checks to the mortgage company all these years. And you know, my final check's coming up. You write that check, 
You send it out, you're like, you know, Martin Luther King free at last, right, from this, this debt. And the next month you get a bill from the mortgage company for the same amount. Are you just gonna scratch another check to them? No, you're gonna get on the line like you do with AT&T, probably be on hold for over an hour. It's getting this figured out, right? So you wouldn't pay more when that debt has been paid in full. And this is why we can speak of it as being done, this aspect of salvation, because the penalty of sin has been paid in full. Once the believer places their faith in Jesus Christ alone, as their personal substitute, then justification is secured. And this is what Romans 5.1 says. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification means God slams his gavel down and declares you righteous. That's what justification is. How can he declare you righteous? Doesn't he have to wait to see if you perform tomorrow or wait to see how you look 30 years from now? No, he can declare you righteous because Jesus is righteous and he's your substitute. See, this, this, these are done deal events because of how God views the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so he speaks of it as being completed and finished. And this is why in this aspect of salvation, we can say, I am saved. I have been saved. What am I talking about? I'll never have to face the penalty for my sins because a substitute faced it for me. So very important to understand this aspect. And so this is what, what John three sixteen says, you know, and this is why God can guarantee that you'll never have to face this penalty in the future. Because what he's saying, whosoever believes in him, what's that first promise? Shall not perish. You don't have to face the death penalty. Why? Because you're this great little Christian boy and girl? No, because Jesus already faced the death penalty for you. So this is why the promise is so secure. This is, uh, well, you can probably figure out what it is. It's, it's a picture of a firing squad. You know, we don't, we don't typically execute people that way uh, anymore in our, in our country. I th- although I think Utah still has the right to do this. I, it's probably considered inhumane now, as if there's a humane way to take somebody's life. But I, 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 that's a whole other discussion. But it, we got this firing squad here. Let me, let me just paint a picture to help maybe... Just, just give an illustration of what, what this aspect of salvation communicates. You know, imagine a, a person was caught uh, red-handed and they, and they knew that he had murdered another person. He'd taken the life of another human being and that, that man was, was put on trial. Uh, the state found him guilty. There was enough evidence to convict him. They determined that his sentence would be execution. And so at some point in the future, after all the appeals, they executed this man by firing squad. Okay, and that happens, obviously, uh, in our culture still. There's still the death penalty around. But after this man's death, new evidence comes to light. And they realize that not only did he kill this person, but he's kill- he killed three other people. What would we do in a judicial system? Would we exhume the body? Put, him in a, put his body in a courtroom, tie him to a chair so he doesn't fall over because he's, he's been you know, dead for months? take him through three trials, pronounce the death penalty upon him three times, tie him up to a tree and then shoot him dead three times. Does he get three more death penalties? Is that how that works? No, of course not. He's already faced the ultimate penalty. Now, let me ask this question. What if he had been found guilty of all four crimes before he died? How many death penalties would he have to face that? Four, right? They'd shoot him dead. No, 
He dies once. There's, there's one penalty, regardless if he killed one person, regardless if he killed 10 people, regardless if he killed 30,000 people. Now take that illustration in your thinking and apply it to justification. How many sins do you think you've committed so far in your life? And how many sins do you think you will commit by the time you breathe your last breath? Well, sometimes we pull out that math around here. And even if we, you only sin three times a day and lived till you're 80, I, I forget what the math was. It was like over 80,000 sins. And you're like, wow, three sins. He's given me a lot of credit. I probably, I probably do that more. I do more, right? The point is this. And this is, this is what we've got to understand. The value of the finished work of Jesus Christ doesn't matter if you've only committed 10,000 sins or 100,000 sins. Remember that quote from the Catholic theologian? Again, I don't often agree with Catholic theologians. In fact, I can't even remember the last time I did other than this quote. He said, the value of the blood of Jesus Christ is such that one drop of it could have washed away the sins of the whole world. Man, that just, you know, talk about the one who died for you and rose again. Talk about the one who accomplished something for us that we could not accomplish for self. The value of what he did 2,000 years ago should just blow our minds. Can, can Christ's death count for you? Oh my goodness, you're small potatoes compared to what he accomplished. He accomplished so much more, right? His, his, his work was so valuable, And so this is why when we talk about this aspect of our salvation, we are saying, you have been saved. You will never face this death penalty in the future. And if if you could, the Bible could not say this so emphatically. Ephesians 2.8, you have been saved. Uh, Romans 5.1, you have been justified. These are all past tense in the English. It, It even gets better in the Greek because Ephesians 2, 8 is a perfect tense, means you, you have been saved, moment of time, completed action with ongoing results, you remain saved. Romans 5, 2, it even says that we stand in this grace. You, you stand and you remain standing. There's a perfect tense aspect. So this, this work of Jesus Christ accomplished more than we'll ever be able to know. And that's why we're gonna sing about it for eternity. It's incredible. You can say this morning, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work for your loan, you have been saved from this aspect of sin, which is the penalty of sin. When we get into the second tense aspect, we're talking about sanctification. This is where the believer is being saved, not from the penalty of sin, but from what? The power of sin. And this is where we all live, believers live. And this is why we still get angry when we don't want to get angry. And this is why we still covet when we know that that's wrong. And this is why we're still tempted to lie to make ourselves look good. It's, it's why we, we attempt to deceive people because we want to be thought well of. It's why we still have temptation to do things that we know are wrong because there's indwelling sin that indwells each one of us. And oftentimes we present our members to that sin nature to do what it's desiring for us to do. And so God has also provided salvation for you. This is good news for the believer. You know, many believers think, well, you know, when I reach the sweet by and by, then I'll no longer struggle with sin. There's victory for you today. Like, like, do we know that? 
you know, I don't know if anyone in here has ever struggled with sin, had a sin that just beset you and beset you and beset you. And you have been in tears. Lord, I promise not to do that again. Lord, I promise not to do that again. Lord, please, I, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to disappoint you. And you know what? You fly right for about two weeks and then you fall again. And you say, Lord, I really mean it this time. I promise I'll never do this again. And then you fly right for three weeks and then you do it again. And you know, for many people that have that struggle, you know what they begin to do in their Christian life? Uh, it is what it is. I'm never going to get victory over this. I just need to learn how to sweep it up, clean it up, hide it, conceal it from everybody else so that they think I'm more spiritual than I am. But if I got in a room alone with God, I would break down and weep because I know how much I disappoint him. I know how big of a failure I really am. You don't have to raise your hand, but has anyone ever felt that way? I mean, am I the only one? You know, I mean, I, the, the good news for the believer is there is victory for you today. You don't have to wait for it until you die. You can enjoy fellowship with the Lord today. You can enjoy salvation in a present tense aspects from the power of sin today. That is good news for the believer. Now, this is the aspect of our one salvation that happens over the course of time. You're never going to reach a point where like, oh, flip the switch. I'm not going to sin anymore, right? In fact, you'll talk to people. Like, I remember I was talking to a guy one time. He says, yeah, I haven't sinned in 20 years. And I said, dude, where is your wife? I'm like, I want to talk to her and confirm this. And sure, now she came over and I said, you tell her what you just told me. And he, and he said it a little bit more sheepishly. When she wasn't there, he was like overly confident. His wife sits down next to him. He's like, well, you know, I kind of told him. Yeah, he's totally sheepishly. And she just started laughing. She didn't say anything. She just started laughing at him and got up. And I'm like, dude, come on. Like, you just got ratted out. So this is, this is not a flip the switch, never sin again. This is a process of time, response of faith, in contrast to what was justification, a moment in time. Now, why is justification a moment in time? Why is sanctification a process of time? Well, in justification, what are we being delivered from? We're being delivered from a debt. So there's a, there's a completion to that debt at some point, and that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. Now, what hasn't been completed yet is this complete deliverance from the very presence of sin. That's going to happen in glorification. But what's happening right now is that God has made a way for each one of us to be saved from the very power of sin. But we have to respond moment by moment by faith to take advantage of that deliverance. That's the difference between sanctification and justification. Again, it's re repeated responses of faith or reliance upon the finished work of Christ and God the Holy Spirit. Now, God's salvation solution for deliverance from the power of sin is, is based on a little bit different aspect of the work of Christ. You know, in justification, we talk about Christ dying for us. In sanctification, the word of God wants you to understand that you died with Christ. See the difference? There's a distinction there. And then in Romans 6 covers this in detail, that it was through your death with Christ to sin that you have been severed from an automatic connection and domination by sin in your life. Now, as a believer, when you're dominated by sin and sin gains mastery over you, it's because you have, by faith, presented your members to sin. That's what's happened. That's the mechanics behind it. You, you thought, well, man, that guy cussed at me, and I just 
hawked, you know, hauled off and punched him. I got angry. Well, no, what happened is that guy did something to you. Your sin nature said punch him. And you said, you know what? Here's my hand. Take, take it over. Go right in the nose. And you presented your members to sin. That's kind of what's going on behind the scenes. So this is going to require ongoing responses of faith to experience this salvation. And this is why sanctification is not guaranteed. Because for God to guarantee this to you, he would have to guarantee that you would respond the right way in every situation of your life. And see, so he gives you free will. You have volition. You have the ability to choose to present yourself to God or present yourself to sin. He doesn't control that. He allows you to make that decision. So it's not guaranteed. And we're gonna look at a, um, a passage here in a second. Um, and this is obviously, this is, this is the area that many people get confused and they start to cram teaching in this tense up into justification. And they, they begin to confuse not only uh, the, the deliverance from the penalty of sin with the power of sin. So there's just a lot of confusion here. And hence, it impacts people's understanding of eternal life and eternal security. Now, the third tense will move quickly is glorification. Future tense will be saved from what? Not the penalty, not the power, but what? The very presence. And I don't know about you, I long for that day. I look forward to that day. I'm tired of living with me, honestly. I look forward to that day. That's gonna be the day where uh, when this human body is shedded, that we're gonna be completely delivered from the power of sin, the presence of sin. And so glorification is guaranteed. It's a guaranteed aspect of our salvation. It's gonna happen either at your death or at the rapture. Okay, at your death, at least you shed your body. You're gonna get your glorified body at the rapture. Even if you die, that's when you get it. But if you're raptured and, and you don't make it to your death, also looking forward to that day, which hope, hope we can be a part of that. But that is when you get your glorified body on the way up. So either at your death or rapture, you're gonna shed the very presence of sin. And so this is why this aspect of salvation is always tied to hope. Hope, hope biblically is confident expectation. Right? You're, you're confidently looking forward to something that God has promised. And this is something that we can be confident on, not based on some condition that we meet, but, but basically because of the promises of God and the work of Christ. This is why we can be confident that this is true. Now, open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. I want you to see this now that we've kind of covered these, this terminology. So Romans 8, we're going, to be in, we're going to start in verse 28. But before I do, let me pull up this point so we can kind of just plant the seed and then we'll go to the passage here. But this is why, everything that we're talking about, this is why justification, first tense, salvation from the penalty of sin, glorification, third tense, future salvation from the very presence of sin, don't have any contingencies or ongoing requirements of the believer. Very important to understand. There's no ongoing requirements. There's no contingencies. Well, if you stop doing this or if you don't do this, it's not even found present in these two aspects of salvation. And this is why you can say that your justification, glorification is guaranteed. You have been delivered from the penalty of sin. You will be delivered from the very presence of sin. But it's also why sanctification, which does require ongoing responses of faith and faithfulness is not guaranteed. Now, I want you to check this out. It, you, this is a very familiar passage. I mean, many of us probably know it, quote it, 
uh, you know, could finish it if someone started it. Uh, obviously, Romans 8.28 is on everybody's wall at home somewhere, probably, right, in our bathrooms or in the kitchen. Um, but I want to get down to verse 30. And I want to show you, when we get down to verse 30, that, that God has got a golden chain link fence of things that are guaranteed of every believer in Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice what's there, and I want you to notice what's missing in, in, in light of what we've been talking about. Verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. He's talking about believers here. For whom he foreknew, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now notice this chain link here. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What's there and what's missing? We can see it, right? Justification is there, part of that chain link guarantee. By the way, all, all, of, these, um, <clears throat> all of these verbs here, predestined, called, justified, glorified, are spoken of as completed events in the Greek. So did you know that in God's mind, he can look at somebody that he knows is saved and he goes, oh yeah, they've been, they've been glorified. They will be glorified, guaranteed. He, it's not a question to him. He's like, well, you know, if they, I don't know, if they fly right, if they... <laughs> stop doing this or they start. No, he can, he can speak of it as a done deal, accomplished event in the future because it's guaranteed. But what's missing from verse 30 is sanctification. Why is sanctification missing? Is because God forgot to provide salvation from the power of sin? Is it because God forgot to provide salvation for you in the present tense? Is that why it's missing? Or God's like, well, you know, I really tried there, but I couldn't quite get my wrench, you know, cranked hard enough. So I don't know if it's going to work or not. No, of course that's not what he's doing. Why is it not guaranteed though? Because it requires ongoing responses of faith from us. That's why it's not guaranteed. Could you guarantee God that you will respond by faith in every instance of your life, every moment from this day forward? No, we, we probably know ourselves well enough to be like, oh man, as I've said before, I can't even remember to take the trash out every week, you know, let alone respond the right way by faith in every situation. And so it's just very important to understand that there's, there's a distinction being made here in the scriptures. And so when people start to try to say, well, in order to be saved, you're, you have to live a completely different life or thus you're not saved. Can you see how they're combining sanctification truth with trying to cram it up into justification, now making it a requirement? for being saved, and it has nothing to do with that. And so let's kind of just keep going because there's a common misunderstanding of the three tenses of salvation. This is why many people believe you can lose your salvation. It's because they're taking sanctification truth and jamming it up into justification truth, thereby causing some confusion. So here are some of the reasons. Some attempt to bring over sanctification truth. I just made that statement and make it a requirement for obtaining justification. Remember, justification is a bill. Justification is an invoice. Justification is a debt. It has a finality to it. If someone can make the payment in full, it is paid for. Never to have a debt again. That's justification. That's how we are delivered from the penalty of sin. That is not sanctification. We need to be delivered from the power of sin every moment of our daily earthly life from now until the time we pass away. I remember talking to a, an, an elderly gentleman one time and he said, 
he, he told me, he's like, you know, I used to struggle, as a young man, I used to struggle with lust. And I said, and I said, you don't struggle with that anymore? He said, no. And I said, wow, what'd you learn? Like, what did you learn from the Bible? How did you, he's like, well, basically, you know, when I turned 70, you know, that just kind of went away. And I was like, golly, is that God's salvation plan from lust? Is that, is that God's salvation plan from the power of sin? You just got to get old enough where, you know, you don't remember things anymore. I mean, is that really his plan? Or does he have something better in store for us than like, good luck, kid. You know, when you turn 70 to 75, it, it's all uphill from there, you know, or downhill, however you would, would want to say that. No, of course not. That's not what he's talking about here at all. So sanctification is a process of time, salvation from the power of sin versus justification. It's a moment in time, salvation from the penalty of sin. Other people uh, attempt to equate salvation from the power of sin to salvation from the penalty of sin. Again, we've kind of covered this, but they'll say, yeah, if you still struggle with sin, you're probably not saved. Um, you know, these kind of things. They try to bring in Christian living back into requirements to get born into the family. You know, imagine if I was, you know, screaming at my kids in the womb, if you don't behave, you're not going to be born. What? Like, that doesn't even make sense. Unless, you know, there were times I had talks with them when they were kicking Carrie a little too hard, like, hey, dude or dudette, you know, settle down in there. But it, but it had nothing to do with like, if you don't behave when you get out, I'm not going to let you be born. Or that proves that you weren't born. What are you talking about? That makes no sense in the, in the natural realm. And yet we, uh, it makes sense for some in the spiritual realm. And so these are some confusions as a result of this, this mixture. So some attempt to make synonymous a one-time deliverance through payment from sin's penalty with an ongoing deliverance through divine resources from sin's power. Now, one of the things that it does is it takes this, uh, it takes these confusions and, and confusion has consequences. And this is why like, uh, you know, a lot of the things like, especially in our church, you know, those of you that have been here for a number uh, of years, especially when we went through the book of Romans, we, we spent a lot of time um, just critiquing the false gospel response cliches that are out there. And the reason we critique them is not to, because we think we're better than anybody else. It's really, it really has nothing to do with it. It has to do with trying to be biblical and exalt the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's really, if anyone would, would ever ask what our motives are, that's our motives. That's our motives. You know, asking Jesus in your heart, you're not gonna find that in the Bible. It's just not there. I'm sorry, Revelation 3.20 doesn't teach it. Uh, we've done entire messages on that. You know, uh, raising your hand, you're not gonna find that in the Bible. Nor are you gonna find 25 push-ups in the Bible. That's, that's even more work than raising your hand, right? That's even more impressive. So it, it's not walking an aisle. You'll never find an example of someone leading someone in a prayer to get saved in the Bible, signing a card. I mean, all the things that we have just thought, I mean, this is just normal Christianity. Many of them are not even biblical. And yet the one response that the Bible gives over 160 times as if that's not emphatic enough, the one response is faith, believe, trust. Why? Because that is the only response that says, I am going to look away from myself, what I can do, what I can provide God, and I am going to look and trust in God's solution for my problem. And so there's, there's a lot of, as we, we have this mixture in trying to combine Christian life truth with justification, this is why some of these cliches come to bear. And in fact, the first one is, and you've probably heard this if you've been in churches, is you've got to believe in Jesus Christ and 
You have to make him the Lord of your life. We've probably heard that. I think that's a pretty common statement. But what it means is in order to be saved, you gotta allow Jesus to have mastery over your life. Now, I am all for Jesus having mastery in our life. Don't, don't get me wrong. I want that for everyone. Because I, I believe that's where true abundant life is, is when you and I learn to walk in fellowship with the Lord Jesus, with taking him into account, everything that we do, say, where we spend our resources, all that stuff. That's what I consider coming under the mastery of Christ. But if I have to do that on a day-by-day basis in order to get saved, you can see how that's a combination of Christian life truth with justification truth. In fact, how does making Jesus the master of my life do anything to take care of the debt that I incurred through sin? It doesn't. Because the debt is death, not good behavior, right? In fact, wouldn't every criminal love that system? (laughs) Hey, Lord, uh, hey, judge, yeah, yeah, I killed that guy, but I promise never to do that again. Okay, get on out of here, dude. Yeah, (laughs) enjoy your life. It wouldn't work that way because there's a penalty incurred because of the past behavior. It doesn't matter what kind of future behavior happens. So you can see that this is a sanctification truth. It requires ongoing responses of faith to be delivered from the power of sin, not the penalty of sin. These two things get mixed together. Romans say, I don't even like make Jesus Lord of your life. I don't like that terminology because I don't even think it's really clear biblically. What I think is more clear is when you get into Romans 6, Paul says it this way, don't go on presenting your members, your body parts to sin, but now go on presenting your members to God as those who are alive from the dead. And then it goes on to say this, whoever you present yourself to, you'll be that person's slave. That's how you want Jesus to be master and ruler of your life. Go back to Romans 6 and start reckoning yourself dead to sin and alive unto God, that's verse 11, and start presenting your members by faith to the Lord. And when you do that and you begin to walk by faith, trusting in God's method of freeing you from sin's power, you will become the Lord Jesus Christ's slave on earth. You know, there is not a higher calling or a better position to be in. Just ask the apostle Paul who identifies himself in many of his epistles as a bond slave of Jesus Christ, one who has been set free, but who willingly came back and placed myself under the servitude of another. And so this is one of the misunderstandings that come out of confusing the three tenses of salvation. Another one, very common in our day, is is people say, in order to get saved, you gotta repent or turn from your sins. We hear that a lot too, right? And what they mean by that is you have to desire to sin less. You've gotta follow through with actions. You gotta just quit sinning. In fact, if you commit sins that, uh, you know, after you, get, you claim to get saved that you did before you got saved, then you should question your salvation. And it's all about you cleaning up your life and sinning less. Now, there's a lot of things wrong with this terminology. I don't have time to go into to all of it. But just at face value, sinning less and growing in holiness, is that a justification issue or is that a sanctification issue? It's a sanctification issue. It's a process of time issue. It's, it's a growth issue. It requires ongoing responses of faith to be delivered from the power of sin. You know, imagine the nonsensical comment, although all of your sins, past, present, and future, and their penalty has been paid for in full, if you, commit to, if you continue to commit the sins in the future, the ones that have already been paid for, then you will have to pay the penalty, the penalty that's already been paid for. And that's what people teach. It, this, this is nonsensical. 
It's almost like if somebody says something ridiculous enough and it comes out of two sides of their mouth and they've got a PhD next to their name, it's like, it's not nonsensical, it's deep. It's not, it's not ridiculous, it's not contradictory, it's something that I'm gonna share on Facebook with, you know, and I'm gonna pass that quote along. Wow, that's so deep. I heard a, uh, I'm being facetious, I heard a deep theologian the other day um, put a quote out there and it said, that the command to believe the gospel is filled with hundreds of other commands. Wow. So, and I'm looking at the next page, where's the hundreds of other commands? (laughs) Like, don't you want people to be saved? If you're saved through faith in Jesus Christ and the word faith contains hundreds of other commands, wouldn't you want them to know? Detailed list by list so that I can kind of work through and check off these other hundred commands so I know that I'm saved? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you want that? And yet people take that nonsense and they'll like it and they'll pass it on on Facebook and they'll shoot it over here on social media and they'll share it on Twitter. And I'm just thinking to myself, I mean, who's, I mean, who's, running, the, who's running these institutions where these PhDs are being given? It's like the loony bin. I think somebody took a wrong turn into a psycho ward and put it like a seminary name on it or something. I don't know what's going on. It doesn't even make sense. I mean, I would love to just understand the logic behind some of these comments. And I, I just don't. And if I'm sounding critical, I'm sorry. I'm just passionate about this. I just don't understand. I just, this is so important. We don't want to mix this up. In fact, do you have to turn from your sins in order to pay sin's penalty? Or do you have to trust in the Savior who paid your penalty by dying in your place? What's the biblical response? What's the biblical teaching. Again, learning to sin less grows spiritually. It's not justification, that's sanctification. It's a process of time issue. One other misunderstanding that has consequences, and I won't spend a lot of time on this one we have in the past, but you know, many people say you got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and confess all your sins. Well, we've talked about that. Though the whole concept of confession, and what they mean by that typically is you've got to name all your sins, you've got to be sorry for all your sins. It typically includes an apology, maybe some tears, maybe a promise not to do them anymore. I mean, this is all kind of encapsulated in the word confession. But when we look in the Bible, especially in the context of where it's used in 1 John 1, 9, confession of sin is for believers, people who are already saved. Because when you look at 1 John 1, it's not a test for salvation. That's how many people teach 1 John. 1 John 1, especially, you look at it, the word fellowship, if you just observe where that word, it's used like four or five times in 10 verses. He's talking about fellowship there. He's not talking about how you get into the family. It's how you enjoy being in the family. It's how you enjoy a, a personal fellowship with God and how when you do sin as a child of God, how do you restore Fellowship. Well, it's through confession. It's saying the same thing. And so, again, we're not talking about salvation from the penalty of sin. We're talking about enjoying fellowship, which is a sanctification truth. Again, fellowship is not a one and done event. That's why many marriages fail. You know, the guy thinks, well, I told her I loved her on my wedding day. And that ought to be good enough, you know, until I tell her differently. You've heard that? Like there was an old football player that said that. He came in for counseling and the counselor said, well, we got to start there. Like, (laughs) You, you should probably tell her you love her every day. You should probably start investing in her in this way. But fellowship's not a one and done event. It's a process of time. And thus it describes sanctification better than it describes justification. Now, we are short on time. But let me just make a couple of more comments about this. And this is really the last point I wanna make. 
Many, many people, because of the confusion of the three tenses of salvation, they equate faith with faithfulness. They, they, they think that faith equals faithfulness. And I want to tell you that faith does not equal faithfulness. They're two different words. They mean two different things. And, and they're not equivalent. And so for many people, that's hard to understand because obviously, does the Bible want believers to be faithful? Does the Bible want believers to, uh, you know, go on with the Lord and, and have repeated responses of faith and grow spiritually? Yes, yes, yes. A hundred times, yes. That's what the Bible wants. That's what God wants. But ongoing faithfulness is not the requirement to have the penalty for your sins paid. Ongoing faithfulness is not a requirement to, to gain access to the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's not the, the requirement. Faith is the requirement. Because in faith, I'm trusting in the finished work of another. Because in faith, I'm looking away from myself to provide the solution to somebody else to provide the solution. You know, even this week, there were some heavy boxes of books that I was gonna carry down to my office. And I, and I loaded the, you know, you always do this with boxes of books. You're always trying to load as many as you can. And then you remember like, oh, I'm gonna have to carry this. That probably wasn't a good idea. And, and I loaded these up and I thought, you know, I'm a big guy. I'm still young. I could probably take these downstairs to my office. But then I thought, you know what? I got a 16 year old son. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let him do it. And you know, in that sense, I put my faith in Cody to do that for me because I didn't, number one, I didn't wanna do it. And number two, you know, I've only got one good Achilles left, you know, so I was like, I'm not doing this down the stairs and flipping. So I, so I put my faith in Cody to do that. I looked away from myself. I just said, you know what? I'm not doing it. I'm going to trust my 16-year-old son. You know what? He did it well. Yeah, he did it a lot better than I could have done. So faith does not equal faithfulness. And this is what many within Christendom will say. They'll say the sinners are justified by faith in Christ alone, but then they practically deny that affirmation by adding qualifications to faith, such as uh, faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. And you can see how they're trying to insert faithfulness as a requirement for salvation. Now, I'm gonna fly through this because I wanna get to uh, this slide up here because this is very important to understand. The, the Greek word um, that's translated faithful is the Greek word pistos. The and it's used 67 times. And here's what I want you to know. Never once is it used for requirement for salvation. You can look it up yourself. You can go check it out. Pistos. Nor is it used in any synonymous passage having to do with salvation, like eternal life. I'm not just playing a word game. Like, oh, yeah, it doesn't include salvation, but then there's you know, 50 of them include eternal life. No, it's nothing salvation related in all of these. Eternal life, justification, redemption, regeneration, it's never used as a condition for salvation. Very important to understand. Faith and faithfulness are not the same word in the Greek. Now, they're, they seem related because they're close to one another, but it's very important to understand that these are two different words, and this is where a lot of confusion comes in. Faithfulness is a good thing, but faithfulness is not a requirement to get saved. Faith in the finished work of Christ and his faithfulness is what takes care of the penalty of sin. And so I'm gonna close there this morning. And next week, I wanna look at, at another aspect of eternal security that I think is so valuable for us to understand. And that is God's mechanism 
for guaranteeing your glorification. And you know what it is? It's just, it's so incredible. It's this little phrase. Like if you've never seen it in the Bible, it's gonna start jumping out to you. But you know that the way God guarantees your eternal security, the way he guarantees your glorification is he put you in Christ. And we're gonna look at that next week, our position in Christ and how that guarantees our eternal security. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I just realized even more, even in studying this week, just how full and complete your salvation is. You have dealt a death blow to every aspect of sin and how it could harm us, ranging from the penalty, the power, and even the presence. And just to look at your plan and just realize that you know what you're doing, that your salvation from sin is full and complete, and that when Jesus Christ accomplished what he did, you were completely satisfied with everything that he accomplished. And we just rejoice as we think about Jesus and his finished work. We look forward to next week as we talk about this great plan, this great mechanism, this great, great thing that you've got in place by putting us in Christ. And we're just so thankful for you and the way that your thoughts are way above our thoughts. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.